Well, it's been a tremendous honor for me to be here this week, and uh, as our brother announced earlier, this is uh, the last session I'm going to have with you as I head off uh, a little bit later today to join uh, the uh, gospel team out in Quebec for a week, and appreciate your prayers for these young men as they labor distributing the, the good seed across the land, and again, uh, very Delighted to be with Brother Jamie and a fellowship together in the things of God. And we've certainly been thrilled to see how the Lord has woven together the ministry and uh, encouraged the hearts of all His people. I'd like to begin uh, this morning where we began yesterday in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We read those words, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. But then the Apostle Paul continues with these words, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake, and you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad so that we need not speak anything. For they themselves show what manner of entering in we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. I'd like to speak to you this morning on another characteristic of the early church, and that was their assurance. They were people who had strong conviction that what they were preaching was the very Word of God. They believed that the Word of God had power and was able to transform lives. And they believed with all their heart that the Lord Jesus who had gone away, was coming again, and they waited with expectancy for His coming. I'm afraid in many places we have exchanged convictions for opinions. America is a land of opinions. And there are news crews traveling around and putting microphones in the faces of some housewife in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and saying, what do you think of President Bush's foreign policy? And everybody has their opinion. But so few have conviction. What's the difference between opinion and conviction? I tell you that a conviction is an opinion that has been put to the test and found to be true. And we need to be people who not only have opinions about the Bible, but have allowed God to give us opportunities to put those truths 
into practice, like the little children's books that have a probe, and you uh, you have to answer a question, and what you put the probe into the right hole, the light comes on, and you know it's true. You know you've got the right answer. And these believers, the Apostle Paul can say in verse 4, I know your election of God. I know your choosing by God. How did he know it? How did he know? Well, because they had responded to the message of the Gospel. And he, the Apostle is stating here that the Gospel brings with it its own proof, its own evidence. Now, there are a lot of people who have the idea that faith means belief without evidence. But that's not what it is at all. The world wants to see and then believe. The Lord Jesus said, Said I not to you that if you would believe, you would see? It's not faith that's blind. It's unbelief that's blind. Faith sees, but it's the order. Augustine said, Faith is to believe what we do not see, and the reward of faith is to see what we believe. And so these early believers in Thessalonica heard the gospel. They were idol worshippers. They did not believe in the true God, but they saw the reality of Christianity in Paul and his friends. They saw that these people had something they didn't have. And they believed God. They believed the Word of God. And when they believed the Word of God, we read, the Gospel came not to them in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. God not only wants you to be safe, He wants you to be sure. Because while salvation comes through believing, the joy of salvation and the power in the life of the believer comes through being sure. If the enemy can get us unsure of our salvation... The joy goes, and the Bible says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. I would suggest this is the number one problem in Christendom around the world today. The majority of people who do not know that they can be sure. And I want to spend a little bit of time thinking about this important topic today. There's a huge segment of Christendom that are absolutely sure that they're saved but they don't know if they can keep it. And another huge segment that are absolutely sure that if you are saved, you can't lose it, but they don't know if they have it. I spent a lot of time with people like that in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And they believe that God selects certain people to be saved. They think that's what this choosing is. And they don't know if they've been chosen or not. And sometimes getting well on in years... You ask them, uh, so how did you get saved? And oh, they say, uh, don't be so presumptuous. He that endures to the end shall be saved. They don't have any assurance of salvation. And so these, these two twin truths are essential for the proclamation of the gospel. The assurance of salvation and the security, the eternal security of the believer. Now, I want to think about these two important topics. 
And three times in the New Testament, the word assurance itself only occurs four times. Once here, and then three more we're going to look at, where the word is used, full assurance. Full assurance. God wants us to be completely sure. Now, the majority of people in Christendom think that the way to be saved is by contributing their own efforts, their own faithfulness, their own attendance on religious observance. And therefore, when they hear me say, I know I'm saved, they think that what I'm saying is, I have such a massive warehouse stocked with good works that I'm a shoe-in. That is not what we're saying. You cannot be sure if you're counting on your own performance. The only way we could be sure is if we were resting on a finished work that had already received the approval of God. And that work is the work of the Lord Jesus. And the resurrection of Christ is the proof, positive, that every sin has been paid in full. Christ died for our sins. If there was one sin left unpaid for, Jesus would still be in the tomb. Because the wages of sin is death. And, and the resurrection of Christ is the receipt, the guarantee, that God has received in full at the hand of the Lord Jesus payment for every sin. So that when I accept those terms... Number one, that it's my sin that Jesus died for. And number two, that His sacrifice was sufficient to satisfy a holy God. The Bible says that I pass from death to life. I don't wait until I get to heaven to find out if it works. The moment I believe, the Scripture says, He that believes has. Now those are both present tense. He that believes has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is already passed from death to life. So let's look at these three passages of Scripture. Interestingly enough, two of the passages are two of those sections of the Bible that are used most often to teach that you cannot know. What irony that in these two passages we have the statement, full assurance. Let's turn first of all to Colossians chapter 2. Just a few pages back in your Bible to the book of Colossians. Now, the people of Colossae who lived in the Lycus Valley in central Turkey lived on the crossroads of the ancient world. The, the trade route came right past their door. And so as there was this transit across uh, their region, not only did they bring silks and uh, spices, they brought ideas too. And so through the city of Colossae, there came the ideas of mysticism and asceticism and intellectualism and legalism. 
And the Apostle Paul is writing a letter that is a safeguard against the false notions of men. If the battle is going to be won, it's going to be won between our ears. If there's stinking thinking going on up there, we're going to be tripped up in our lives if we don't think in Scripture, if we don't understand what God is saying. The enemy is seeking to distort and to divert and to uh, dissuade us from simply taking God at His Word. This has been the long war from the days in the Garden of Eden when the devil said, Has God said? And raised doubts in people's minds about the clear teaching of the Bible. And specifically on the person of Christ. This is the devil's attack. You'll find in the Bible this triumvirate of evil that is opposed to the Holy Trinity. The Father and the world. Because they're both interested in the same thing. Love not the world. That, now we define the world in this sense. The world is that system that has been built up in opposition to God. The world is the place where people are trying to be happy without God. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so they're both interested in the same thing, our affection. The Bible does not describe the world in terms of having things in the world. Although our hearts are deceitful and they can trick us here, we need to be careful. But the Scripture doesn't speak about having things. It speaks about loving things. Don't love the things in the world. Don't set your affection on these things. I don't normally quote uh, Hollywood uh, producers uh, as uh, being authoritative. But on one occasion, Sophia Loren, uh, on on a movie shoot, had had someone break into her hotel room and steal her jewels. And she was weeping to break her heart. And her husband, Carlo Ponti, the producer, said, Honey, never cry over anything that can't cry over you. This world is too small. Its glory is fleeting. Its pleasures are temporary. Only God is big enough. Solomon told us that, didn't he, in the book of Ecclesiastes. Young people, when you're young, he says... You seek for the Lord, the Creator, while you're young. Don't give God the leftovers. He doesn't like them any better than you do. While you're fresh and young and eager and your mind is sharp, this is the time to give yourself wholly to the Lord. So there's a battle between the Father and the world. They're interested in our affection. And, says John as he writes, neither will be satisfied like a wife and a lover, neither will be satisfied with half a heart. Give yourself wholeheartedly to love the Lord. Love the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. This is the only passion you can give yourself wholeheartedly to and and you'll never be disappointed. And then, the Son, the Lord Jesus, and the devil are always in opposition. And the reason is that they're interested in the same thing. They're interested in our allegiance. 
The Lord Jesus is the rightful ruler of the universe. The devil is the pretender. He's the usurper. And he wants people to bow to him. And you remember when they, when the devil confronted the Lord Jesus, he said, I'll trade you the glory of all the kingdoms of the earth if just you'll bow down to me. He was trying to get the Lord Jesus to circumvent the cross because it's the will of God that everyone bow down to the Lord Jesus. It's the purpose of God that all the glory of the universe be given to Christ. But it wouldn't happen apart from the cross. There's a day coming when the devil will bow down to the Lord Jesus. He's been knocked from his horse. His crown is in the dust. The devil has already been defeated. And so, one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit coming into the world is to convince people of judgment. Not of coming judgment in that verse, but of judgment because the prince of this world is already judged. It's the work of the Spirit of God to convince people they're on the losing side and they need to come over to the winning side and bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, both the devil and the Lord Jesus are interested in our allegiance. Stand up for, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Don't be embarrassed to be embarrassed for Him. It's not wrong to be ashamed for the Lord Jesus. It's wrong to be ashamed of Him. He's nothing to be ashamed of. But nobody likes to be laughed at. Nobody likes to be uh, treated like they're a half-wit. The Lord Jesus was put to shame. It's not wrong to be put to shame, but it's wrong to be ashamed of Him. He's nothing to be ashamed about. You be willing to stand up for Jesus. And then there's another conflict between the flesh and the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God, who has come to indwell the believer, is constantly fighting against the flesh. And here we mean by the flesh that that fallen tendency, that tendency towards evil, the, the, the part of me that always votes for sin. My son John, when he was a little boy, we were, I was driving him home from school one day and he said to me, Daddy, they were playing some music at school. I don't think it's very good. He said, I don't like it. And I said, well, son, I'll write you a note. You, you can get out of it. If you, I don't think you should listen to it either if your conscience is offended by it. And he said, good, because I don't like it. So we wrote along a little bit and then he said, well, actually, Dad, there's a part of me that does like it, but I think it's the wrong part. <clears throat> That's the flesh. And you know, even when I give up as a Christian, I just feel like I can't take it anymore and I give up. I, I'm so thankful the Holy Spirit doesn't lie down beside me and say, well, I'll give up too. Even when I give up, the Spirit goes on fighting against the flesh and will not yield until eventually... He has made me like Christ. The Spirit of God is sealed to the day of redemption. He's moved in. He's taken on the project of making me like the Lord Jesus. And you know He's going to accomplish it. One of the greatest surprises in heaven, when after I've had a long loving look at the Savior, I may be tempted to look at myself and say, Lord, you did it. How did you do that? I seem to be so uncooperative. I seem to learn so little and, and be so slow at changing, but somehow you've done it. He which has begun a good work in you will perform it 
until the day of Jesus Christ. And we shall see Him as He is, and we shall be like Him. Because sanctification and glorification are just as much a work of God as salvation, as justification. It's all in His hands. Colossians chapter 2, we read these words. Paul says, I, I would that you know what great conflict, what intense agony I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted. Now the word comfort here is not, oh, hey, I'm sorry, I know it's tough. The word confortus in English, to add strength, to encourage, to add courage, that's the idea. To fortify, that your hearts will be fortified against the attacks of the enemy. That you will be knit together in love unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, even the Father and Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest anyone should beguile you with enticing words. This is the first of four times the Apostle warns about others fooling you, tricking you, enticing you. This is the devil's trap line. And he talks about the false view of the heart, mysticism, and a false view of the mind, intellectualism, and a false view of the will, legalism, and a false view of the body, asceticism. You see it again, lest any man, in verse 8, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy, oh sorry, philosophy, and vain deceit. He talks about it again a little bit later. Uh, verse 18. Well, verse 16. Let no man therefore judge you. Verse 18. Let no man beguile you. Watch out. It's dangerous, he says. And what is the answer every time? Is to get your eyes on the Lord Jesus. To look to Him. To realize that everything is in Him. The fullness of God's revelation is in Him. The treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Him. That we're rooted and built up in Him. In Him, verse 9, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him. You're buried with Him in baptism, verse 12. All the way through, you're made alive together with Him, in verse 13. And so, as the Apostle Paul speaks to these Christians, he tells them that the full assurance of understanding, in other words, the way to be completely sure is to look away from yourself, look away from human philosophy, from human ideas, from human rules and regulations, and look to the Lord Jesus. Look for Him in the Scriptures. Stay close to the Lord Jesus. Don't let anything get in the way between your soul and Christ. Walk with Him every day. Take everything to Him in prayer. Trust Him in every circumstance. 
Christianity is Christ. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. You will find that every false cult, every false religion, it will come down to this. What think ye of Christ? Anything that lowers my appreciation of Christ, that makes me think less of Him, must be wrong. Because God gives Him the highest place. God tells us that the fullness of blessing, the fullness of wisdom, the fullness of the Godhead, everything that, that is worth having is in the Lord Jesus. And so beware of anyone who would elevate man apart from the work of Christ, that would diminish your thoughts of the Lord Jesus, that would call you to rely on other ideas or other philosophies or other ways of doing things, rather than, as Paul would say, for me to live is Christ. It's easy to juggle one ball, isn't it? That's it. Christ in the family, Christ in the business, Christ in the personal life, Christ in my relationships, Christ in my stewardships. Just that. Lord Jesus, what do you think of this? What would you like me to do? What pleases you? Well, Lord, you want me to do this? I can't do it. I want to do it. You're going to have to do it through me. I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. He's looking for my cooperation. He's looking for my trust. And when I trust Him, I allow Him to do His work through me and then He gets the glory, as He rightly deserves it, as we cooperate with Him in His purposes. And so this speaks of the full assurance of understanding. One time somebody said to um, August Van Ryn, You Christians, you think you know everything. He said, You got us wrong. We don't think we know everything. We know we know everything. And then he quoted the words of John, you have an unction from the Holy One and you know all things. Now that doesn't mean that I personally know everything. What it means is that available to me is everything I need to know. If I need to know something, if I need to know the way ahead, if I need to know something for a decision, uh, whatever it might be, it's available to me. All knowledge is available to me. And whatever I need to know, in order to do the will of God, in order to please Him and fulfill the purpose for which He made me, it's available to me on a need-to-know basis. God doesn't give me information just to swell my head. In fact, that's what the Bible says, that knowledge alone puffs up. So God doesn't do that. He doesn't want us to be theorists who go around spouting ideas. He wants us to be realies, people who live the truth. And so He gives me the truth as I need it, so that I can live it out. In the Old Testament, manna, a bread, which is a picture of God's provision to us, uh, if you didn't use it, it, it didn't just sit there. It rotted. It got stinky. And you know, there's something stinky about people who know a lot but don't live it. We want to take the truth and live the truth. We want to make it real in our lives. We don't want to come to a conference like this and go away and say, well, that was interesting. They were good preachers. Like they were sitting there like an Olympic event, 3.5, 4.5. We're not here to judge the ministry. We're here to be judged by it. We're here to let the Word of God speak to us. 
And I hope when we go home, no one will be able to walk up to us and say, you, you know, you, you, you haven't changed. We think, you know, the world thinks that's a compliment. <laughs> you haven't changed. Oh, Lord, I want to change. I want to be more like the Lord Jesus. I want to change in my attitudes and my habits and my lifestyle so that, as we were saying earlier, we're not marginally different. We're ten times different. So that people look at us and say, what is it with you? What is it you've got? And we can introduce them to our friend, the Lord Jesus. Well, I want to go over to two other passages in the book of Hebrews because we're going to have to spend a little more time in these. I appreciate Brother Jamie yielding some of his time to me this morning. First of all, let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Now, I wish we had time to look at the whole chapter, but let me simply explain, give you a little outline of the chapter. In verses 1 to 6, the question is asked, was there perfection... Or was there satisfaction in the Old Testament sacrifices? And the answer is no. And then in verses 7 to 10, did those sacrifices choose to do the will of God? Were they willing sacrifices? And the answer is no. But when the Lord Jesus came, He said, I come to do Thy will, O God. Now, Willing, willingness is an essential part of the plan of God. He wants us to be willing. If any man will, let him come after me, said the Lord Jesus. You will not come to me that you might have life. And what makes Christianity so precious, so special, is that the Lord Jesus stands by waiting for us to be willing. Now, one of the, one of the concerns of many religious groups around the world is uh, that people are becoming Christians. And so they're writing laws, anti-conversion laws. But I say to them, it won't work. Because, you know, there's nothing in the Bible about converting other people. It's impossible for a Christian to convert another person. The verse, the, the statement in Scripture is always something you do yourself. Unless you be converted... I can force someone to another religion, but I can't force someone to love God. I can't force someone to love the Lord Jesus. It has to be a willing choice. If I say to my son David, you tell me you love me. I love you, Dad. Thanks, son. That warms my heart. It doesn't, does it? It has to be a willing choice. And that's why there's been so much trouble. You know, the human race has caused more trouble in the universe than all the rest of the universe put together. And it's because the human race is that group of creatures who have been given a will to choose. Because my love has to be volitional. My, my worship and service has to be willing or it's not worth anything. I'd rather program a computer. And so, this little section describes the wonderful work that was accomplished when the Lord Jesus willingly came and offered Himself for us. In verses 15 to 18, the question might be asked, did the Old Testament know nothing of this? Was this a total surprise when Jesus came? And the answer is no. No, in fact, 
the, the writer says the Holy Spirit in verse 15 gave witness in the Old Testament to the coming of a new covenant. Now I want to pause just for a minute here. The Old Covenant was a bilateral agreement. Like a man who goes to a builder and says, if you build this house according to this blueprint, I'll give you this much money. You have your obligation, I have my obligation. The Old Covenant was like that. If this, then blessing. If that, then cursing. And the children of Israel failed to keep the covenant. In fact, Moses couldn't get to the bottom of the mountain, and they'd already broken it. And he took the tables of stone and smashed them on the ground and said, that's what you've done to the law. Well, then Moses went back up the mountain. He got another set of stones. But he didn't give them to the people. What good would that be? They'd break them all over again. What he did was he put them into the ark of God. A picture of the Lord Jesus, who someday would come and would fulfill all righteousness. But that wasn't enough, you know. Because the people had broken the law, they had brought a curse down upon the human race. And so the Lord Jesus not only came and lived a perfect life, satisfying the righteousness of the law, He then went to the cross, and hanging on the tree, says the Apostle, He bore the curse of the broken law. He fulfilled those two, as it were, perfect tables of stone. And then He paid for the broken tables. And He fulfilled all righteousness. Having done that, then He provided a new covenant. And the new covenant is a unilateral agreement. And we read it here. Listen very carefully to the part you play in this new covenant. What is your responsibility? Verse 16, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. What's your part? Just to enjoy it. Just to enjoy it. It's like the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant was made when Abraham was unconscious. Obviously, he didn't make any promises, did he? God took it all on himself. And this is the new covenant. It's impossible for me to break this covenant because it was made entirely by God himself. And then we read in verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness, confidence, to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now this is something absolutely new, isn't it? We might write over these verses 19 to 22. Could you enter in the, in, within the veil in the Old Testament? Answer, no. This is something entirely new. I think I told you before about speaking to a a Jewish woman one day, and um, she, actually I had a chart, and she won, I was in a photocopy shop, and she said, what's this about? And I said, these are the basic teachings of the Bible, and and, um, so she said, explain it to me. And as we talked, she said to me, do I have to become a religious Jew to go to heaven? I said, heaven, you haven't been peeking, have you? Nothing in your Bible about going to heaven. They were gathered to their fathers. This idea of going to heaven is an idea that's only possible because Jesus opened heaven to us. He was the the forerunner, the first one into heaven. 
the first man in heaven. She said, well, do I have to become a religious Jew? And I said, well, you'll have to help me there because I don't know any religious Jews. She said, well, there are lots of them in Israel. I said, well, I've been to Israel a dozen times, but I've never met any religious Jews. She said, well, the Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox Jews. I said, well, I've met a lot of ultra-Orthodox Jews, but I've never met a religious one. She said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know what the Jewish religion is, don't you? There's a special place called the holiness of holinesses. And God lives there. He's not like the gods of the Gentiles. He's a holy God. He's different. He's sin apart. And you're a sinner and you can't go in there. But you know, God loves sinners. And He's found a way to have a relationship with sinners through a priest and an altar and a sacrifice. Now He said, uh, these religious Jews you're talking about, do they have the holiness of holinesses? No. Do they have a priest? No. Do they have an altar? No. Do they have a sacrifice? No. I said, I guess I don't know any religious Jews then, do you? I said, whatever they're doing right now, that's not what God gave them. That's not, that's not the, the design of God's religion. I said, I don't suppose you'd be interested in knowing when the whole thing shut down, would you? She said, I would. I said, well, it may just be a coincidence. But it happened at the split second when a rabbi from Nazareth was hanging on a cross outside the city of Jerusalem. And he cried, it is finished. Not I'm finished. It's finished. What was finished? All the work that was necessary to rend the veil in two. And that's exactly what happened. The Bible tells about the time of the evening sacrifice as the Jewish priests were getting ready, suddenly that mighty tapestry, as thick as a man's hand, 60 feet high, from the top to the bottom with a mighty rending, it was torn open. No wonder the Bible says many of the priests believed. Only God could have done such a thing. And that rending of the veil opened the way for us to enter now into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. I said to this Jewish woman, if you want to see Judaism, don't go to the Jews. They don't have it. You go to the Catholic Church. You go to the Orthodox Church. Go to the Episcopalian Church. That's Judaism. It's not Christianity. It's Judaism. They have a selective priesthood. They have incense. They have altars. They have sacrifices. And instead of a veil, they've replaced it with a rail. But the same idea, you can't go in there. That's not Christianity. Christianity says, the veil has been ripped in two. And all who are believers are priests. And our great high priest has opened the way for us to come in with no need of intermediaries. We come into the august presence of God Himself with confidence. Why? Because of this double blessing, the blood and the water. Now John will tell us over in 1 John chapter 5, whatever has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory. Now that's the word Nike. It's the only time Nike is found in the Bible. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world? But he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water 
and blood. Now, the children of Israel were saved by blood in Egypt. They were saved in Egypt. But God's intention was to save them out of Egypt. And they were saved by water. Not by blood only, but by water. They came to the edge of the Red Sea. And by the mighty power of God, He opened up the way and He brought them through to the other side. And they sang the victory song on the other side of the sea. And so God, through this twofold work, the blood that, that pays the debt and sets me free, and the water, this cleansing work, the sanctifying work, justified by blood, sanctified by the water, the work of God, twofold salvation, He brings us into His presence. Now, He goes on to say this, Let's hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised, and let us consider one another to provoke to love and good works. In other words, this word provoke here, paroxysm, there's a disease called paroxysmal trigeminal neuralgia. It's a, it's a disease, it's a, a condition that is triggered by certain stimuli. Sometimes people chewing or just the sunshine on their cheek will cause involuntary action. Now this is the word that, that the, the writer is using. We ought to be irritating each other in a good way. We ought to be provoking one another to love and good works. We ought to be stimulating God's people by our own lifestyle. And, and so says the writer, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. There were people who were bailing out on Christianity because they were saying, it's too expensive. Why can't I just go back to Judaism? What's wrong with that? Judaism isn't a false religion. God gave it. The patriarchs practiced it. Why do I have to lose my family, my friends, my job, maybe my life? It's not worth it. And that's what they were doing. And so the writer raises a warning. And he says, I want to tell you about a fatal flaw in Judaism. If, verse 26, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and has done despite to the Spirit of grace. The writer says there was a fatal flaw in Judaism. There was no sacrifice for willful sin. There were sacrifices for sins of ignorance. But if someone committed sin willfully, there was nothing to look forward to but judgment. What about the cross? He died to save us from all iniquity. You know what iniquity is? lawlessness, self-willed rebellion against God. Thank God there is enough in the cross to pay for willful sin as well as sins of ignorance. That's what the passage means. That there are those who are saying, 
Christianity is too expensive. You know, to become a Christian is absolutely free. But to be a Christian, it'll cost you everything you got. You're not your own anymore. You're bought with a price. Everything you are, everything you have belongs to the Lord Jesus. And that's why when the Lord Jesus measures the, the sacrifice we make, He doesn't measure how much we give. It all belongs to Him already. He measures what we keep back. That's why the widow who cast in her two mites gave more than they all. Because Jesus was measuring how much they kept back for themselves. It's all His. And we need to use it in this way as a stewardship. And so here in this passage, the Apostle uses this wonderful phrase again in verse 22. Let us draw near with true hearts in full assurance of faith. Not now full assurance of understanding. In other words, if you want to understand Christianity, get to know the Lord Jesus. But now he's talking about the full assurance of faith. This idea, it seems almost a contradiction because people think that faith means you don't have anything to make you sure. You're just leaping in the dark. You're just guessing. You're hoping. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Faith is the reasonable response to the evidence God has given. Faith is the reasonable response to the evidence God has given. And so he says, let's draw near. Let's draw near to Him. Why? Because we're not coming on our own merits. When I pray, I don't say, Lord, this is Jabe Nicholson. I come in the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm accepted in the Beloved One. He's the one who is acceptable to God. And on the basis of the sacrifice which he's been speaking about here, this sacrifice that satisfied God forever, the, the other priests, they kept coming, he says, but by one sacrifice for sins forever, he satisfied God. And so I bear His name when I come into the presence of God. The name that God delights to bless. I come accepted in the Beloved One. And so I have full assurance of faith as I draw near. I believe what God says about His Son. I've accepted Him as my Savior. And I'm welcome 24 hours a day in any circumstance. In a moment of time, we rise up past petty officials, government leaders past presidents, past kings. We rise up past demons, past angels, past cherubim and seraphim, and we step in a moment of time right into the immediate presence of God and we speak face to face with God. I hope you don't get used to it. It's an absolutely amazing thing. They talk about the speed of light, the limiting speed in the universe. Prayer is faster than that. You can actually go back in time. He answers you before you ask. What a marvelous thing to have unlimited access into the throne room of the universe and to realize God doesn't just want us to come there on official business. Clara Barton said, I have to keep reminding myself, God is not my private secretary. I don't come to, with a list of things for Him to do for me. I come as a servant of the Lord and say, Lord, what will You have me to do? And I seek to to enjoy Him, not simply as working for His company, but as a child of the Father, to look into the face of my blessed Lord 
and to realize He wants me. He loves me. He likes me being there. He waits for me to come. He longs for me to spend time with Him. Finally, over in Hebrews chapter 6, we have the third time this phrase is used. And this time, it's not the full assurance of understanding found in Christ, or the full assurance of faith found in Christ. The full assurance of understanding, that is, the fullness of the truth of God is found in Christ. All theology is Christology. The truth is in Jesus. He is the truth. It doesn't matter what doctrine you start with, you always end up with Christ. The doctrine of sin, you say? Absolutely. You know what sin is? In its simplest definition, sin is everything that is unlike Christ. He's the standard of what is right. And that's why he said, I'm sending the Spirit. I'm going to ask the Father to send the Spirit into the world to convince people of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father. When he was there, he just had to walk into a room and everybody knew they were sinners. That's why the Pharisees hated him. They looked good in the dark. You know, you can look like a movie star in the dark. It's when you turn the light on that reality strikes. And so in the dark, they look pretty good. But when Jesus stepped into the room, they found the devil lurking in their hearts. And they hated him for it. Look, don't don't blame the, the makeup artist. Don't blame the photographer. I mean, they've only got so much to work with, right? And so people need to be honest with God. And honesty is simply coming to terms with the fact that I'm nothing like the Lord Jesus. But the work of redemption is to transform me to be like the Lord Jesus. And that's what happens. The eradication of sin in the believer's life leads us to be like Him. The doctrine of of the church. What is the doctrine of the church without Christ? What is a what is a, a flock without a shepherd? What is a building without a foundation? What is a bride without a bridegroom? What is a body without a head? He's not simply part of the picture. He's the essential part of the doctrine of the church. The doctrine of Israel. What is the story of Israel without their Messiah? Without their great high priest? Every doctrine ultimately comes back to this. What is bibliology? What is the study of the Bible without Christ? He is the essential message. And so, when we think about the Lord Jesus, the fullness, the full assurance of understanding is the measure in which I enter in to the truth of the Lord Jesus. The full assurance of faith now is not so much understanding who He is and what He has provided. The full assurance of faith is entering into the fact that I'm accepted in the Beloved One. That He has forever linked me to God. The God-Man, the Mediator. And I am, I am the recipient of the very life of God. And that's why the Apostle Paul can say, when we were sinners, Christ died for us. When we were enemies, Christ died for us. If God knew you at your worst, He's not going to give up on you now. When you were rotting in sin, when you were an enemy, He loved you. And now, no matter how weak we are, no matter how often we fail, I am His 
and He is mine. And I'm secure in that. The full assurance of faith. Now we come to uh, Hebrews 6, verse 11. We desire that every one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope to the end. What is the hope of the Christian? Paul says to the Ephesians, there is one hope. (laughs) Well, you know, you start talking to Christians, and uh, some are pre-trib, and some are post-trib, and some are amil, and some are partial rupture. You know, everybody has all different ideas about the schedule. How is there one hope? Well, I'll tell you what the hope is. To be with Christ and like Christ. That's the hope of every Christian. And you know, the hope is always presented that way. It's not, it's never presented as being going to heaven. You'll never hear that kind of terminology. The Lord said, um, in my Father's house are many mansions. If I, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto my place. No. Myself. That where I am, there you may be also. The Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, and so shall we ever be in heaven. No. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Would you like to go to heaven if Jesus wasn't there? Be the saddest, darkest place in the universe. He is what makes heaven heaven. He's the light there. He's the lamb there. He's everything that makes heaven heaven. And so the certain hope of the child of God. You see, in many gatherings of God's people, nobody talks about the coming again of the Lord. Because, well, we don't want to offend brother so-and-so. He's got a little different view. And nobody's quite sure what the, the schedule is. I want to tell you that the early believers had a hope, a real and certain hope. And if you think this is a, that, that uh, eschatology is something, well, leave that for a while. You're, you're just a young Christian. Don't get into Revelation and all. Leave that. I tell you, the Apostle Paul, he was only three weeks in Thessalonica. You know what the Thessalonian epistles are good for? Whatever Paul says in the Thessalonian epistles, you already know this. Remember I told you this? I don't need to teach you this. You make a list of those things, and you'll know what Paul thought was a first aid kit for for Christians. Those are the things they ought to learn right away. And you know what he talks about? The Lord's coming. Every chapter he talks about it. When I was a little boy, every meeting they talked about the coming of the Lord. You know what our problem is? We're too comfy. Heaven can wait. We don't have that edge on our preaching. We don't preach as Baxter did, as a dying man to dying men. This could be our last meeting. This could be it, ladies and gentlemen. Today could be the day. Do we live like that? My grandfather had a little sister. And um, there was a terrible uh, epidemic that hit Montreal when she was a little girl. My great-grandmother lost four children in one week. And Mary was one of them. She was eight years old when she died. As a little girl, she'd come down the stairs. They had a large family. She'd help mother make the breakfast. And many a time she'd go and pull back the blinds and she'd look out and she'd say, Do you think he'll come today, mummy? That's the hope. The hope is not what your theology is. 
whether, whether you understand all of the movements in the book of Daniel. The question is, when you get up in the morning, do you believe that this could be the day? And you want to live that day to the fullness of the glory of God because you don't know if you'll have another day. Do you live like that? That would spur us on in the gospel, wouldn't it? That would spur us on in getting right with our brethren if we've got a problem. We wouldn't wait another day because we never know when the Lord's going to come. Now, you may argue that, but I tell you, when I read the New Testament, I read those verses at the end of First Thessalonians chapter 1. He said, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait, not for the Antichrist, to wait for His Son from heaven. They thought the next event in the calendar of God was the coming again of the Lord Jesus, the imminent return of Christ. Now, when we say the imminent return of Christ, we do not mean that the Lord could come back at any moment. We mean that as far as we're concerned, He could come back at any moment. God has a date on the calendar. And so if God wants to reveal to us how Peter's going to die or that the temple's going to be destroyed, God's free to do that because He knows exactly when the Lord's coming back. But that doesn't change the fact that I don't know and I want to live in the expectation of that. When I meet Brother Dave Stifler, he shakes my hand and he says, I'm disappointed to meet you here. <laughs> he was hoping the next time it would be on a golden street. An old man, we were just a few of us sitting breaking bread up in, up in the Maritimes. And at the, end of the prayer, at the end of the Lord's Supper, he got up and he went around and he shook everybody's hand and he just said, Till, till. It's only till he come. This could be it. We need to have that gripping our hearts again. We will not be able to convince people around us that the Lord is coming if we are living for the same world they're living for. We've got to loosen our tent pegs, ladies and gentlemen. I'm out of here as soon as possible. But I've got to keep busy. We need to occupy until He comes. It ought to spur us on. We shouldn't be sitting around in the mountains waiting for the Lord to come. He said, occupy, keep busy until I come. Well, here in chapter 6, he goes on to say this. God, verse 13, made a promise to Abraham. He's going to use the Abrahamic covenant as an illustration now of the new covenant. The new covenant, technically, is made with the house of Israel in the day to come. But Paul explains in the book of Romans that God is free to extend the benefits to those who are the spiritual children of Abraham. And so we take the cup Lord's Day morning and we hear him say, this is the new covenant in my blood. And we've entered into the good of that covenant through faith in the Son of God. So here he uses the illustration of the unilateral covenant, the one-sided covenant that God made with Abraham. And verse 13 says, God made a promise to Abraham. So we have a promise. But God says, I'm going to give you more than that. A promise is good, but some people make promises and don't keep them. God is called the God of promise, the God who keeps His promises. But God wants us to be sure. And so we read that He swore an oath. Because, verse 16, men swear, uh, pardon me, uh, verse, uh, verse 
17, God willing more abundantly to show to the heirs of promise the unchangeability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. Now you can imagine uh, Bill Gates, he, he goes out for the day and he stops in at the corner store to pick up his morning paper and he reaches for his cash and he says, oh, I'm sorry, I left all my money at home. Uh, can, can you hold on, I'll pay you tomorrow. And the clerk runs into the back and brings out a Bible and says, now look, I want you to put your hand on there and swear to me that you're worth it, that you've got enough in the bank to cover the, the newspaper. Maybe a pretty humiliating thing for Bill Gates, wouldn't it? But here's the God of heaven, and he makes a promise. That ought to be enough. But God says, I want you to be sure. I want you to have full assurance. And so, I'm going to swear an oath. But, well, God doesn't have any problems. But if he did, this would be it. But you always swear by the greater. That's why we put our hand on a Bible. We always swear by the greater. There's no one greater than God. So what God did was he swore by himself. He put his himself, his character, as collateral to guarantee his oath. So that by two unchangeable things, God's word, he cannot lie. God's character, he cannot change. The two witnesses of the word of God and the character of God, we could be absolutely sure. In other words, if I put my trust in the Lord and he doesn't save me, he says, I'll cease to be God. I'm putting my own character down as a guarantee for the promise that I'm making. So we have a promise. We have an oath. We have the collateral of his own character. And then we read in verse 18 that we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold on the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Now, you know, if you look at a map of the Mediterranean, you see that there aren't too many good harbors, especially along the Mediterranean coast. There are uh, little harbors at best, uh, pardon me, along the Adriatic, along the coast of Israel, little, little harbors, sometimes rocky, and especially a sailing vessel in a storm coming into harbor, uh, the danger is it would be cast on the rocks. And so they would put the anchor into a little boat. And they'd row the little boat into the harbor. And they'd secure the anchor. The, the boat was still, the ship was still out in the, in the sea. Still out in the storm. But now the anchor was secure in the harbor. We're still out in the storms of life. But our anchor is already secure in heaven. We're as sure of being there as if we were there already, because our anchor is in heaven. And what is this hope? Well, he, he speaks of it in these words, sure and steadfast within the veil. Our life is hid with Christ in God. Amazing. So we have a promise, an oath. His character is collateral. The certain hope, the anchor steadfast within the veil. And then we have, in verse 20, I think one of the most thrilling truths in the Bible. I know that your, uh, what do they say, your, um, your mind can only absorb what your seat can endure, or something like that. But if you just catch a hold of this, 
We have a forerunner who has entered for us into heaven. Now, dignitaries still use forerunners today. The president will send a little embassy on to see how he will be received if he were to visit this country. And if they're treated badly, he doesn't go. They represent him. David sent an embassy to Amman, Jordan, and they cut off half their beards, you know, and shamed them. And, uh, and David sent his army down. That's the way they treated them. That means that's the way they treat me. Jesus had a forerunner, John the Baptist. Herod cut his head off. So when Jesus stood before Herod, he didn't say a thing. How can you say anything when your head's cut off? That's the way you treated my forerunner. That's the way you treat me. Now, the Lord Jesus never did anything for himself. Even Christ pleased not himself. He didn't even go back to heaven for himself. He appears in heaven for you. And when he went back to heaven, he went back as our forerunner. Because God not only wants you to be sure you'll be in heaven if you put your trust in Christ, he wants you to be sure of the way you'll be received when you get there. Some of you may feel I've made a botch of it, and I'm not looking forward to this going to heaven thing, because I can just imagine when I get there, and God's going to say, wow, yeah, I guess I guess I did save you. I'm obligated to let you in here, but you've been... You've been a real disappointment. You are not a good example of my workmanship. Uh, maybe just stand over behind that throne there. Just stay, you know. There are people who are very reluctant about going to heaven because they feel it's going to be a very embarrassing thing. People will quote half a verse like this. Judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who will reveal the hidden things of the heart. And everybody goes, ooh, no, not that. It doesn't scare me, because I read the rest of the verse. And then everyone shall have praise of God. You think he's going to snoop around for all the sinful things and the fail? No, no. That's all covered by the blood. What he's going to be looking for are the little things we've done we've forgotten about. The smile, the handshake, the word of encouragement. He's kept track of it all. And he's going to reveal those things in that day. The little ladies who've never hardly said a peep in the meeting, but they've prayed all these young Christians through all the tough years of their Christian experience. Someday he's going to show that. He's going to reveal those things. Well, here's the Lord Jesus now. He arrives in heaven. He's the victor of Calvary. The choirs are ready to burst into song. The celebration's ready to begin. He raises his hand and he says, let's not start yet. I'm the forerunner. The dignitaries will be here soon. We won't start till they get here. How was Jesus received? The Father got up off His throne and said, Son, sit here with Me. Do you know how you're going to be received? The Lord Jesus is going to get up off His throne. He's going to come to receive us. And He's going to say, Sit with Me on My throne. And we shall reign with Him. And He shall reign forever and ever. The forerunner who has entered for us, even Jesus, a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. We have a promise. We have an oath. We have the character of God as collateral to guarantee. We have a, we have a hope as an anchor of the soul. Already there in heaven. Our life is already there. We have a forerunner who has shown us how we will be received when we get there. And we have a great high priest 
who was praying us home every step of the way. When you don't pray for you, He prays for you. You're on His prayer list. And He's praying you home every step of the way. His prayers, by the way, are never off base. His prayers exactly match the will of God. They're God-sized prayers. Do you think all the blessing in your life is because of your prayer life? Oh, what mighty prayers He prays for His people. And He intercedes for us. And He's praying us home every step of the way. God wants you. If you put your trust in Christ, He wants you to be sure. He wants you to have full assurance. Full assurance of understanding. Everything we need to know is in Christ. Full assurance of faith. We are accepted in the Beloved One and have access to God by faith. And full assurance of hope. He that shall come will come. He'll gather us home. We'll never have to say goodbye in heaven. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Shall we pray? Now, Father, take Thy Word, we pray, and make it more real to us than these beautiful mountains and trees. Remind us again that what is seen is temporal, and what is not seen is eternal. Help us to live for the real world, the world that is yet to come. Help us to set our hope there. And for people to ask us, surely we can never expect people to ask us of our hope if our hope is down here. But our hope, like an anchor, is already secured in heaven. We're looking forward to the day when never again will will we be ashamed. Never again will we disappoint Thee. Never again will the blush rise to our cheek or the guilty conscience. Pass that forever to delight in the Lord, to serve Him with unlimited resources, to run and not be weary, to rise up with the eagles, to have the heavenly perspective, to behold His face, to serve Him, and to know at last He has done all things well. We give thanks for such a glorious salvation, so great salvation, How can we keep our mouths quiet when we see multitudes around us while we're on our way to heaven, they're on their way to hell? Oh God, give us passion, give us compassion, give us boldness, give us wisdom. May we not be able to keep our mouths silent as we share the wonderful truth of the Savior's love. We pray this in the Savior's precious name. Amen.